turn to Acts chapter 9. Today in our encounter series, we'll be studying, examining the encounter of Saul Paul with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was, uh, is a major significant contributor to the New Testament. He is a pastor, a preacher, an evangelist, a church planter, a discipler. For his faith, he lost friends, he lost his job, he lost his social status, he was mocked, ridiculed, persecuted, in and out of prison, and ultimately died for his faith. And when you see all the good that Paul did, you might wonder, did Paul grow up in a Christian family? Did he grow up going to a Christian school? And none of that is true. Paul was an antagonistic towards, uh, very antagonistic towards Christians. He was a zealot for the Jews, a Jewish leader, a, a Pharisee, a lawyer. He knew the Hebrew scriptures inside and out. He hated Jesus and all of his followers. He was present at the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and he consented to it. And then one day, as he's traveling down the road, he has a very brief encounter with Jesus Christ, the, the, the risen, glorified Savior. And in that brief moment, his life was transformed forever. And not only was his life changed, but it was a rippling effect of countless people throughout history, including all of us, who've been changed and transformed by Paul and his ministry. As we walk through this passage, I'll show you observations and of uh, Paul's experience and encounter with Christ and how, what it means for us today. Let's begin in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Because of the size of this passage, I'm going to walk through it. I'm not going to read it all in its entirety at first. But let's start in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. We see, but Saul, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And to set the context even more about what a bad guy Saul was, we can read in Acts chapter 8 verse 3 where it tells us, but Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering houses, house after house, this would be in Jerusalem. He dragged men and women off and committed them to prison. Paul would just go in the homes of believers, perhaps even during their mealtime or during their prayer time, and if he knew they were followers of Christ, he would just invade their home and snatch them out. He was not, uh, he didn't discriminate. It didn't matter if it was a man or a woman. He grabbed everybody he could to put them in prison. And what was his purpose? He wanted to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. He hated everything about it. Verses 1 and 2 here that uh, tell us here, it says that he went to the, the high priest this would be the supreme authority for the, the synagogues and for the Jews. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, this would be their name for the Christians at this time, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And these two verses show the heightened hatred that Paul has, Saul Paul, for Christians. And if there was a spectrum for love and hate for, for Jesus and his followers, he would be as far over on the side of hatred that you could get. There's not even another inch he could go further on that spectrum. He wanted them dead. Dr. Luke here writes two qualifying factors of his hatred in just these first two verses. First, he's threatening Christians. This would be to threaten them by putting them in prison, threatening to kill them if they don't stop proclaiming Christ. 
If they don't stop following Jesus and sharing what Paul thought was their nonsense about the resurrected Lord, Paul believed, Saul believed that Jesus was a false teacher and a threat to Judaism. And in Saul's mind, Jesus hung on the cross and was crucified. And anyone who hung on a cross was cursed, according to the word. Paul had taken it upon himself to be the sword and the enforcer for Judaism. And he believed that all Christians were a threat to his religion. Jesus had died after all. He was a false teacher in Paul's mind. He was dead and buried. And look, his followers are telling people he is alive. And not only is he, his followers telling people that he's alive, they're also saying that salvation is found in Christ and Jesus, that he is the Messiah. In Paul's mind, this is absolute heresy. Paul believed the fake news of its day that that Jesus' disciples had stolen Jesus from the tomb to make up this whole resurrection plot to further their movement. Paul believed lie after lie. He dedicated his entire life to a lie. And here he goes from village to village. It's hunting season. And he's hunting down Christians to take them to be tried and executed. This is a... He only, not only wanted to end the madness with the threats, but he wanted to kill the followers. And the number two qualifying characteristic here that shows us his hatred for Christians is that he went to the officials to get the authorities to give him power to arrest people. This would be a deputizing process, just like a deputy might be sworn in in a sheriff's office to go and enforce the law. Paul was given these papers to head to Damascus. Damascus at this time is known to have as many as 40 to 60 synagogues. It's about 160 miles to the north, the northeast. It's going to be a week to two weeks depending on the terrain and the, and the weather for Paul to get there. Imagine you traveling in your car a week. Now, it might take you a week to get to Anchorage, Alaska, wouldn't it? That's about how far Paul would travel if you're measuring the, the rate at which he traveled at his time. It would take a while and he's going to take people with him. To give, he has the authority to arrest. Paul, Saul is on a mission. And the reason I keep saying Saul, Paul, is that Saul had a double name. Paul was his second name. His name was never changed to Paul, contrary to popular belief. Acts 13, 9, Luke tells us that his name was Saul and Paul. And his name fluctuated from back and forth until he started ministering more to the Gentiles. And then he took the name Paul. Saul means prayed for, demanded one. And Paul, the name means little one, to be humbled. What a perfect name for Paul, someone who became very little for Christ. Saul was enraged. He's hunting down Christians. He goes to Damascus. And now we see verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, this would be his day-to-day life, his normal routine for him. He approached Damascus after this long journey and suddenly... Without any notice whatsoever, there was a light, a light that was shining down from heaven, and it shone around him. This will be a light coming down from the sky. It lights up everything around him during the day and lights up Saul himself. Saul is terrified. The light came down, and here we we notice that the Lord was able to get Saul's attention in a mighty way. Don't you think Saul has, the Lord has Saul's attention? Verse 4 tells us this, his reaction. And falling to the ground, what a great way to receive the Lord, isn't it? 
to be down low. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary and even in his preaching says that Saul had to be up on his high horse at this moment. And in just a moment, he goes from a high horse to being put in a very lowly position on the ground. He hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just for observation's sake, only eight names are repeated twice back to back in the scripture. And here is one of those occasions. Jesus calls Saul by name. And this is a calling that will forever change Saul's life and the trajectory of his life. Notice here something interesting. Saul is speaking threats against Christians. He's going door to door and pulling Christians out of their homes and putting them in prison. He wants them dead. But look who the Lord says he's persecuting. He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting those who are following me? Who does the Lord say he's persecuting? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This would be an uh uh-oh moment for Saul, don't you think? Now he realizes that persecution against the church is persecution against the Lord. And what an encouraging factor for all of us that when the body of Christ is hurt or harmed because of the proclamation of the gospel, because of doing what the Lord has called us to do, that it's not just the body of Christ, the people individually who are hurt, but it's also the Lord Jesus himself who feels their pain. Because ultimately it is he who is being persecuted. I would imagine Saul was in a great state of shock. His first reaction is to fall to the ground and he can't stand up. He hears a voice. The light is so blinding. And now he's hearing truth for the first time. The Lord Jesus is speaking truth to to Paul. The devil is the father of lies. He's filled Saul's heart and mind with lies about Jesus and Christianity. and, And Paul believed him. He believed these lies and dedicated his life to following lies, and now he's hearing truth for the first time. And look at verse 5. This is an absolutely incredible question. Because in verse 5, he said to him, who are you, Lord? This Lord is is not a, a sir. It's not an act of kindness. This is certainly a divine moment. Saul knows that this is the Lord. And isn't it amazing? He doesn't know who the Lord is. He is a a teacher of the word. He's a religious man. He's a Pharisee. Certainly he should know who the Lord is. And this shows to show you that people could know the word. That they could be spending their entire lives going in and out of churches and services and even serve. Because Paul thinks he's serving God. And yet he does not have a relationship with the Lord. Paul says, who are you? And and here the Lord is going to answer him and says to him in in the rest of the verse. And he said to him. I am Jesus. What? How could you be Jesus? Everything I've heard about you is that you were dead, that you weren't raised from the dead. And all these people were out telling people you're alive and now I'm hunting them down. You're Jesus? The Lord is Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice twice here the Lord says that he is persecuting the Lord himself. Jesus reveals his identity Saul believed the lie, and now he's hearing the truth. And friends, you and I could believe a lie about the gospel our entire lives. For the first half of my life, I thought our salvation had to be earned. I thought that we had to work hard for our salvation, and very educated men had taught me that. They were very religious as well. And maybe you're sitting here today, and you believe that you could earn your salvation. You could do something for it, but that is a lie. That is a lie from the enemy. The Bible makes it very clear that you cannot earn your salvation. It is a free gift from God. And notice here that Saul's name is known by the Lord. And Jesus calls his name twice. 
The Lord calls the name of his people to awaken them. Is he calling your name today? As you're sitting here or watching online, is the Lord tugging at your heart to repent of your sins, to turn from your ways and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? And then the Lord gives instruction here in verse 6. He says, but arise. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Saul had every intention of entering the city, but he had his own plans. And so often we have our own plans, don't we, until we come to Jesus and then our plans change. And then the Lord puts us on his trajectory. The Lord's, I thought the Lord's plans for me were to enter politics and go to law school. And then the Lord called my name and awakened me to a spirit. Instead of going to, to law school to study man's laws, I went to seminary and studied God's laws. I was close, but not close enough. But I never thought for a second in high school as an unsaved young man that the Lord would ever call me to stand in the pulpit and preach his word. That was not the, what my classmates uh, considered me one day doing in the yearbook. Verse 7, the word tells us, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but not seeing anyone, seeing no one. They were in shock and awe. Paul does what the Lord says in verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What a picture of the gospel, isn't it? That someone could have eyes but not see. And so too someone could have physical eyes and see physically but not see spiritually the truth of who Jesus is. A natural person is blinded to the truth of the gospel. A, not, a natural person looks at saved people and say, you really believe that about Jesus? You really believe the resurrection and all that stuff the Bible says? Later, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. Don't you think that Saul would have something to say about that? Having been a man who denied the crucifixion, the resurrection, that the crucified Lord actually was him on the cross, denying the testimonies from all of his people, it was foolishness to him. Friends, if you're sitting here today or watching online, do you believe in the power of the gospel or do you think it's foolishness? Because I have met so many people who are close to me who think that the gospel is folly. And the Bible says if you believe that, you are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what else would Paul later write about the spiritual blindness that he would know something about? In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes, In their case, the God of this world was, has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, what? The light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul knew what it was like to be spiritually blinded to the truth. And then one day he saw the light, literally, of the glorious risen Lord Jesus himself, and he believed the gospel. Paul is writing to those who, who believe to know that there are people who are going to reject the gospel message. And why will they reject it? Because their hearts have been hardened by sin, and they're spiritually blind. Verse 10 tells us, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Notice here this word disciple is used twice. The first time we read it, it's who Saul is hunting down. He has papers to arrest the disciples 
And now we're introduced to one of the people who had a heat-seeking missile on his, tar- on his back, Ananias. Ananias was a devout Jewish man, a believer. Next, we're told, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. What a beautiful response when a servant of the Lord is called by the Lord for an assignment. Isn't that a great response? He was devout. He loved the Lord Jesus. He believed, and now he's getting an assignment. Notice here, just by observation, Ananias was available to do the Lord's work. Friends, are you available to do the Lord's work? Ananias doesn't say, I'm sorry, Lord, you have something you want me to do. Let me pray about it. But oftentimes that could be my response and your response when we have an opportunity to serve the Lord, especially in the church, can't we? When someone in the church announces that there's a need in the church to serve. And right now our church has a number of areas of need to serve. And when you're contacted or asked or you hear the need, do you pause and say, you know what, let me pray about that. What are we praying about? The Lord calls his people to serve him. And Ananias doesn't say, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm too busy. I've got a lot going on this week. Instead, he says, Lord, here I am. And my hope and prayer for you and for me that whenever the Lord calls us to serve, we will stand up and say, Lord, here I am. How may I serve you? How may I bring you pleasure with my words, my actions, and my deeds? All my deeds, my thoughts. Here we see the Lord is calling Ananias, and verse 11 tells us, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Notice the intimate detail of this passage, this section here. The street is called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him that he might regain his sight. The Lord gives Ananias the street address. He gives him the the owner of the house, Saul's name and where he's from and what he's doing. The Lord knows every intimate detail of his people, all people. He knows every thought that you have and every thought you're about to have. He knows every action that you're doing and he knows your address. The Lord is calling Ananias to serve him. And when Ananias goes, he's going to regain sight to Saul, whose eyes have been blinded temporarily. But Saul doesn't know that. Why is he praying and fasting? Maybe he's praying and fasting for his sight to come back. Maybe he's praying and fasting because he he doesn't understand all that he's just learned in just that brief encounter with Jesus, and he's repenting of his sin. But we know that Saul will have a problem with his eyes later in his life. Because in Acts, excuse me, Galatians 6.11, he writes, See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Was that the thorn that was in his side that he would have a problem with his eyesight? We're not sure. We're not for certain. The thorn could be an ailment or a disease, but a thorn can also be a person who the Lord puts in your life. Because Paul will write in 2 Timothy 4.14-15, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. Friends, the Lord will put things in your life to keep you humble. He will put things in your life just like he did for Paul to keep him from being prideful and conceited. And again, those could be ailments or disabilities or certain people that he'll use or poor conditions or financial stress. Have you ever considered that the problems that you're having in your life 
are there to keep you from being prideful and arrogant in your walk with the Lord. Verse 13, we read this, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, about how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Saul was a religious man. He knew the Bible inside and out, the Old Testament. He taught the scriptures. He prayed. He offered sacrifice. He led people. He fasted. He observed the Sabbath. And yet notice here we're told his deeds were evil. He was evil because he was trying to gain his own righteousness and he was hurting God's people. And verse 14 tells us, And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Notice what Ananias is doing here, friends. He's questioning the Lord's plan. And the Lord has said, I want you to go to this house, Judas's house, on, on the road called Straight, and put your hands on this man. And Ananias is saying, whoa, whoa, slow down, Lord. Do you know what you're doing here? Let me tell you who this man is. What kind of response was Ananias expecting? Was he expecting the Lord to say, gosh, Ananias, that's some, that's some ideas I hadn't considered. Maybe we should slow down here, this plan that I have. That's the Saul we're talking about? He's the one that was in Jerusalem? The Lord knows this, but how often are we Ananias? I could be Ananias an awful lot when the Lord tells me to do something or burdens me or I read it in his word and I know it to be true that I am to act. And I say, Lord, slow down here. Don't you understand these conditions? Don't you know? And then we could fill in the blank. The Lord wants absolute obedience from his people. We are not to question the Lord. Ananias is a good man and he will do what the Lord says. But right here he's showing part of his depravity and questioning the Lord. He is not perfect, and I am not perfect, and you're not perfect, but we are to do what the Lord says because the, land, the Lord's plan is perfect. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all the time, and everything he calls us to do is for his glory. Hebrews eleven six tells us that without faith it is impossible to please him, and it requires faith for you and I to do what the Lord calls us to do. It is called faith and trusting the Lord's word. Ananias is to believe the word and act on the word and trust the word without questioning it. But here, verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. For he, referring to Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake, the sake of my name. Paul from Tarsus? This is your chosen vessel, Lord? You've, you've not only taken, a, you haven't taken a leader of the gang, you've, a ruler in the gang, a gang member, you've taken the leader of the gang. The very one who is leading this army who is against us, Lord, you, you've awakened him, you saved him, and now he's going to be your chosen vessel to proclaim the gospel? That's exactly what the Lord's plan is. The Lord has taken the one whose heart is hardest. The Lord has taken the one who is actively pursuing those who are against Christ and pursuing them. Paul knows what it's like to be saved by grace. Because when people tell you, no, no, we're saved by works, you could take them here and say, Saul was doing evil. The word says so, and the Lord saved him. What good was he doing that earned him salvation? Absolutely nothing. He was as far from God as you could possibly get, and Saul will call himself the chief of sinners. That's why Paul puts a greater meaning, doesn't it, when Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 
for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. The Lord saved Paul by his grace, not because of anything that Paul was doing. He deserved hell, just like you and I deserve hell because of our sin. But by his grace, he called our names and he rescued us. Luther said at best, he said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes our salvation necessary. We contribute absolutely nothing to our salvation. Verse 17 tells us, so Ananias departed and he entered the house. After questioning the Lord, he did what the Lord told him to do. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. Here we see that Ananias believed the Lord. And how refreshing this must have been for Saul to hear that a a follower of Christ would put his hands on him and call him brother. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. The Lord Jesus gave Paul, Saul, spiritual life. He took a man that was spiritually dead and gave him life. He awakened him. Saul moved from the spiritually dead category to the spiritually alive category based on no effort of his own. And the Lord of all people chose Saul. He grabbed him. And and one commentator said it's interesting that Saul was going to arrest believers. And here the Lord arrested him. He stopped him in his tracks. And everything that Saul thought he would carry out didn't happen. Instead, the Lord had greater plans for him. These scales that fell off his eyes, they looked like scales, which means they perhaps weren't scales. It's just what they look like. But they represent a a physical falling of something off his eyes that represent the spiritual scales that fall from our eyes the moment we believe the gospel. And then we're told something amazing happened here in verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. The very people he was going to hunt down, he became one of them. And he loved them and spent time with them and learned from them. And then look what happens in verse 20. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Saul proclaimed Jesus. I mean, I can imagine all the disciples are cleaning out their ears right now to make sure they heard that properly. Everyone would have been in shock and awe. And not only was he proclaiming Jesus, but look at where he was doing it the very place that he was supposed to go to arrest Christians, he's gone in the synagogues. And look at what he's saying. The Spirit of God tells us in his word. He's saying that he is the Son of God. That everything he thought growing up about Jesus was a lie. And it was revealed to him by the Lord. The scales had fallen off his eyes. And he believes the truth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God who came to die for humanity on the cross. He was buried and he rose the third day. The resurrection is true. Verse 21 said, and all who heard were amazed. I'll bet they were. I'll bet all the men in the synagogue who were expecting the sheriff to come in arresting all these Christians were amazed when that deputy stood up and started preaching Christ crucified. And they said, is this not the man who, who made havoc in Jerusalem? His reputation preceded him 160 miles away. That's how bad this guy was. And he wreaked havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, and now he's preaching it. And has he not come for this very purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? Then finally, in verse 22, we see this. 
But Saul increased all the more in strength. And he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He proved it to the Jews. He is a walking billboard of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Saul will later go on to write Romans 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Saul's life was transformed drastically by the power of the gospel. Has yours? Has your life been transformed? Do you believe it? Are you a different person today than you were before you met Christ? Or are you still living the same way? Or have you gone back to the habits that you had before the Lord set you free from it? When people see you, do they see the power of the gospel in your life? Because who you are today is not who you were before you knew Christ. I'll leave you quickly with just three points to ponder, and then we'll wrap up in prayer. Just three things to think about from this passage as we leave here today. Number one is this. This should be encouragement for all of us. That if Jesus can save Saul, he can save anyone. And if you have someone in your life who you think is so far on that end of the spectrum that they just hate Christians... They don't want to hear you talk about the Lord. They don't want to hear you pray for them. If you think uh, that they're too far to be reached, you've got another thing coming to you. Because if the Lord can save Saul, he can save that person too. Be encouraged, friends. Don't give up. I think each of us may have people in our lives that we, we could put on that spectrum that they just hate the Lord and hate everything about him. And they don't want you to mention him when you're around him. Number two, a point to ponder is this. That the called are commissioned. That for those of us who are called by God, he has an assignment for each of us. He has a calling to serve his kingdom, to proclaim his gospel, to serve the church. Where are you serving the church today, friends? Or are you too busy? My hope and prayer is that if we're saying we're too busy, that we will repent of that right here today and confess that before the Lord and simply say, Lord, here I am, Lord. How may you serve me? How many of you serve me in the body of Christ here at Christ Baptist Church? Because there's so many different areas that you are needed to serve the body, to serve Christ here. We have so many non-believers who are coming to our service, and so many of you are bringing your friends and family, and we need help caring for them. How will you serve the Lord here? Finally is this, number three, point to ponder, is pray for the saw in your life. If this passage doesn't encourage you to pray for your Saul, I don't know what will. I would like to challenge you to think of one person or two who are the Saul in your life who are very antagonistic towards Christians. Maybe they're far away from you. It doesn't matter how far they are geographically. You can still pray for them because the Lord sees them. Or maybe they're in your own household. Maybe they're your own children or your spouse or your parents. I want to encourage you to pray for them and don't stop praying for them. And ask the Lord to cause a conversion in their hearts, that he would call their name and awaken them to new life, to be transformed by the power of the gospel, to be used for his kingdom. Would you do that today? Would you pray, Lord, here I am, how may I serve you? And would you pray for a soul in your life that he will convert and transform to new life? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, your word, uh, it confronts us with issues, it convicts us of our sin, it comforts us, and ultimately it's designed to conform us to be more like Christ. Lord, please uh, let us leave here today encouraged to pray for people in our life who we know are far from you, 
And we ask that you would transform their hearts and minds as you did this wicked man walking down the road to Damascus. Saul had a drastic transformation of the heart and and began to live for you in just a brief encounter. And Lord, I ask that all of us would have the spirit of saying, here we are, here I am. As you call us to to serve you in different ways in our community and in life and here in our church, that we would be the body of Christ you called us to be. That we would obey your word and honor your word and submit to it. And Father, for us, uh, any of us, if there's areas of our life that we're not obeying your word, convict us of that. That we would confess it here before you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.